Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. While I don't have any hard evidence or scientific stats to back this up, I suspect there isn't a woman alive who hasn't thought deeply about her relationship with her mother. Our mothers and the bonds we have with them, the good, the bad, profoundly shape the women we grow into. My guest today is the author and essayist, Rachel Levy-Lesser, who writes about motherhood from every angle, as a daughter coming of age, as a mother raising teens, and about the devastating death of her mother when she was a young adult. Rachel is the author of four books and countless essays. Her most recent book is Life's Accessories, a memoir and fashion guide about the totemic power of objects to conjure memory and help us understand life and all of its beauty, joy, sorrow, heartache, and hilarious absurdity. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for that lovely intro. I'm so excited to uh, have you as a guest. Rachel and I actually go way back. We're connected through uh, my cousin Shane, but you're on today to talk about your writing. You lost your mother as a young adult, and you've been writing about loss, grief, uh, and really the beauty of life and all of its magical and mundane moments ever since. Can you walk us through how you came to explore grief you know, and life through writing? Yes. It's funny that you mentioned Shane, just because I was thinking about her a little bit this weekend. As I told you, I was in touch with her recently, and she had just read my book, Life's Accessories. And there is um, an essay slash chapter in there on my time in grad school when I was at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, and I wasn't sleeping at all. The chapter is called um, Fleece Socks Will Keep You Warm at the University of Michigan in Insomnia instead of in Ann Arbor. And I, that's where I met Shane. And she had actually lost her father when she was in college. And at that point, my mother was very sick when I was in grad school. And I was coming to terms with the fact that she was going to die. And I remember looking at Shane as this high-functioning, young, happy adult and saying to myself, well, she's okay, so I think I'm going to be okay. So I don't know, that just kind of that kind of oh, came I, up when you, when you mentioned her name. And I, I, I think that. that's a part of everyone dealing with their own grief. I remember also at that time when it was in my 20s, when I was coming to terms with this and, you know, my mother and I were very close. She was my person, as we say. Um, a friend of mine was just telling me that her mother who passed away was her best friend and her husband was her second best friend. I have to say that's kind of how <laughs> we, we used to joke in my family as well. Um, but um, so I, I think that everyone has to come to their own grief on their own, on their own terms. So I could look at a friend like Shane and say, Oh, look, she's doing okay, but I couldn't just make myself be okay. So that was kind of a long intro to answer this question. No, I but um, love it. I would say my sort of journey with grief came about, you know, when I was in my 20s and dealing with how sick my mom was getting and that I was going to lose her. At the time, I was in grad school. And then soon after that, I worked in marketing and PR, which was kind of what I did throughout my career in my 20s. But um, after she died, when I just turned 30, I started writing in a journal. Um, which was what a therapist suggested that I do to kind of get all my thoughts and feelings out on paper. And um, in the journal, it turned out I started to write down a lot of memories of my mom from as far back as I can remember. And the journal sort of became an outline for my first book, which was called Shopping for Love. And it was about all of the time that I spent together with my mom and her mom and her sister shopping together. Um, so that was sort of how I started writing about grief. 
Um, I love that book, Rachel, you know, because I remember you share a very funny story about buying your first grown up dress with your mother. Right. And you're holding up this like silky, sexy slip dress. And your mom looks at it and says, that looks like a slip. And that made me laugh because that was like the point. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's... And I said, well, it's called a slip dress. <laughs> and that was that was a big moment. That was like the I, I think I was in college and it was, um, you know, your first real sort of grown up dress something that that your mother's buying for you that she didn't ever think she would buy for herself which by the way as a mother of a teenage girl right now the styles have definitely changed and my daughter's only 15 but she's worn dresses way skimpier than that <laughs> i have to say it's kind of a style now we i have a 20 year old daughter and we have had very <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about when they they yeah. I think it's kind of an eighth grade when they hit bar mitzvah season and all of a sudden they're like really short dresses and really high heels. And we used to have a rule yeah. of thumb that I got from my neighbor, which said um, if the uh, dress is short, uh, the heels are flat. And if the yeah. d- dress is long, yeah. the heels can be high. And we, we, we use that as an operating principle for longer than yeah, my daughter yeah. would have liked. I have to say my daughter's pretty good and we're always, we always you know approve it. But um, it is funny how the styles do change. So what item or accessory always makes you think of your mother? Uh, that's such a good question. There's so many. And I wrote about them in Life's Accessories. Um, in the book, there are 14 essays. Um, and in each essay, there is an accessory that I use to sort of tell a particular story. For example, there's like the Elsa Peretti heart necklace that I write about to talk about how my college boyfriend completely dumped me. Um, and there's a scarf that I write about um, called the happy scarf from Burberry. It actually is a happy scarf. That's what they call it. And I would say that is the accessory that probably makes me think of my mom the most because she bought it for me um, in November, 2003, which she died a few months later. And I said in the book that it would be our last day shopping together. And I didn't know that then, or maybe I did, but I chose not to. And so I, when she bought me the scarf, I sort of knew that there was a reason she was buying it for me. And, um, I initially thought I wouldn't wear it because I thought it would make me sad, but it turns out like the name of it, it definitely makes me happy. I mean, I have so many other like sort of heirloom accessories from her that were her mother's that are mine, pieces of jewelry and things like that. But, um, I would definitely say that scarf reminds me of her in so many different ways. Oh my gosh. I absolutely love that. I feel like a little lump in my throat thinking about the (laughs) scarf. Um, what do you think, is there a particular item that your kids would think of you when they, you know, is there something that they would have that kind of connection to? Yeah, I think so. I mean, scarves are definitely my thing. And, um, you know, now that we're all at home all the time and I'm working from home and the kids are home certain days from school, they always see me working in a scarf inside on my laptop, even, you know, it's warm in my house, but I always have a scarf on. Um, and in the book I write about there, how there was a particular particular scarf from anthropology that I suspect may have launched my writing career. (laughs) So I think when they see scarves, they think of me and also probably dangly earrings. Um, Even on the, you know, we're home all the time. I'm wearing leggings and, you know, long sweaters and workout clothes. But on a lot of days, I try to, I try to wear some dangly earrings. It just makes me feel kind of put together and like a person, I guess. Makes you feel like you. I have that yeah. too. And by the way, I have a scarf thing too. I don't know if this is, <laughs> maybe we live in chilly homes, but I, I love scarves also. Uh, I I'm, love them. I'm curious because yeah. your mother died, you know, um, how many years ago now? She died in 2000 and 
four. So, um, and where almost, were you at that phase of your life? You were in grad school. Ago. Were you married yet? Um, I graduated from grad school in 2003. And so I had just moved actually to a town right near where I had grown up. So I would definitely say, you know, it's funny when you look back on the choices you make in your life. Um, I met my husband living in New York city. We went to grad school together in Michigan and then, um, we kind of knew we didn't want to go back to New York city. Um, we kind of were ready to, we wanted to have kids and I actually graduated from grad school pregnant, um, which is another story. But, um, and so we moved to be closer to my parents. I mean, we ended up getting jobs in those areas, but it really was a conscious decision um, because I wanted to be with my mom for what little time I had with her. And it was just a period of months. And then I actually remember after she died saying to my husband, you know, I'll now I'll go anywhere. I'll go back to New York. I'll do whatever. And it turns out we ended up kind of loving where we lived, um, you know, for all the reasons when I was growing up that I thought I wouldn't like it. Cause I thought, Oh, it's so boring and there's nothing to do here in the burbs, but it's really great. <laughs> we met a lot of great people. So, And did um, your mother get a chance to meet your, your son before she died? She did. He was, um, he was the first grade. And I, that's another part of why I think that I graduated from business school pregnant. Um, because I knew how sick my mom was and I wanted her to meet a grandchild, um, which she did. And so, yes, yeah, she knew him for a few months and he was named for her father and she loved that. And, um, you know, we, I spent a lot of time with her and with the baby. And I do think though, you know, looking back with, um, hindsight being 2020, there was a part of her that didn't get as close to my baby as she maybe would have, if she hadn't been sick. I think first a part of her was just really sick and not feeling well. Um, although she never really let on and never complained, but she was just, you know, tired a lot and she didn't have the strength or energy to play with him or hold him. Like I, like I thought she would have, um, she was young, she was in her fifties. Um, and then another part I think that I realized later on was that I don't think she could let herself go there to a place of, of snuggling with him and loving him and hugging him, which, which she did to an extent. But I, as I look back, I often saw, uh, a sort of self-imposed attachment sometimes because I think it was too hard for her to, um, imagine the life he would have without her. I really, I really think that's true. And I, I think about that a lot, you know, now I think with both my kids, I mean, she knew of my, she knew my son, she knew of him, but she didn't know of, of the other, of my daughter, my, my, my brother's son and, you know, so many things. There's so many things that happen in this world, in politics and the news in with my friends that I think, what would my mom think of that? And there's just so much she doesn't know. And has becoming a mother yourself affected uh, your relationship to this this sort of loss and, and and grief? Do you find that it like has it ebbed and flowed? Has it changed shaped at all? Shape at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I've sort of gotten involved in this um, the motherless daughter community um, and the motherless mother community. Believe it or not, Hope Edelman, who's written a lot about uh, motherless daughters. I actually contributed an essay to one of her anthologies about the topic. I think it affects so much. Not having a mother affects so much of the way that I parent. Um, I think in some ways I've become the mother and the grandmother. <laughs> um, my kids have a great- a You sound very grandma. busy. That's very yeah. busy. <laughs> my, my, my kids have a great, wonderful grandmother in my mother-in-law and they have great aunts and lots of great figures in their life. But 
I often think about how I do things that my mother would have done with them um, that are more grandmotherly than motherly in some respects, like special occasions and spoiling them a little bit in a way I wouldn't do. So sometimes I'm like, wait, am I being the mom or am I being the grandma? I'm like a, I'm a young grandmother, I guess. I think that's so lovely and fun because I I remember bringing my own daughter home, who's now 20, as I said, and I've got a 17-year-old and 13-year-old. And at one point, I was so envious of my mother because she had, like, all the enjoyment. And I feel like I had, like, all the sleepless nights. And so it's yes. it's nice that you've incorporated that kind of, um, you know, fun, you know, grandmother spirit to your to your parenting. Um, yeah. I, no, I have. It's sometimes hard to figure out who I'm being. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's hard to figure out who we're being, you know, so, so often. And I feel like we're also in a very strange season right now where, we're all kind of navigating with um, loss and grief, you know, in some kind of like micro ways, um, but in some some massive ways. You know, we had a uh, a terrible uh, COVID death milestone this this week. There's there's just yeah. a lot of grief and suffering, yeah. and and for people who are experiencing this kind of fresh loss, you know, or for people who may not be but want to support those who are, do you have anything that you can? you know, excavate from your own experience to share that might be helpful or or maybe something that doesn't help at all that you want to, you know, warn people off from? Yeah, it's funny. I have a good friend who I write about in the book named Melanie, that's her real name, um, who we met as like young mothers through like a baby club or a brunch at someone's house a million years ago. And a little aside of that, we were told, everybody was told who came to the brunch, don't bring anything. But, but I cannot, I can never not bring something. So I showed up with a chocolate babka and I was the only one that brought something. And Melanie said, who's the chick with the chocolate babka? <laughs> so then we became fast friends. And as it turns out, she was a social worker at Gilda's Club, which is a national cancer support community started, uh, named in memory of Gilda Radner. It was started by her, by her therapist, Joanna Bull, and her husband, Gene Wilder. And so um, I started to get involved in Gilda's Club a lot. And I often taught writing workshops there for people dealing with grief. And um, the reason I'm telling you all this is because this is sort of some of the grief advice that I picked up on the, along the way in sort of talking to people at Gilda's Club and in some of the writing workshops and some of just the the day-to-day talking to people that I know who've lost people. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the person, my husband sort of jokes about it, even though it's not funny, but just to say, like, if somebody loses a mother... They come to me and I, I know what to tell them, unfortunately, or maybe, you know, fortunate for them that, that I could offer advice. But I, I think this is so cliche, but it's so true that time really can be your friend. I mean, I think that when you're in the thick of the immediate loss, you just, I mean, you're, you're not yourself. I mean, you're, you're, you're like handicapped in a way, you know, you can't be thinking straight. Um, and you just kind of, I would say you have to let yourself feel all the feels, right? You can't put them away. At the same time, though, you obviously do have to go about your life. For me, right after I lost my mom, it's funny when I look back on it, it was one of the busiest times of my life. I had a newborn um, and I had a job and I moved to a new town and I was meeting people and I was really trying to help with my father and just all the the dynamics of a new family, the way it happens when a central figure in it dies. So I, I I think you do have to feel the feels. You have to let it kind of wash through you. But at the same time, you have to get on with your life. So you have to get up and you have to shower and you have to take care of your kids or go to your job. And there's some people who are so 
stunted in their grief that they can't. And I can understand that, but I also think it's so important to just get up, put one foot in front of the other. And there will be one day where you will be laughing about something and it will be a real laugh or you will be smiling about something and it will be a real smile and, and that will feel good. So I, I think the advice is kind of, you know, go through the motions and do what you have to do in day to day, but allow yourself to think and feel and to remember. And that's kind of, you know, step one. And over time you will get there. Um, but you can't, you can't just put it all, put all those feelings away because they'll come back up. They'll fester. Um, and you know, that, that could stunt you later on. I think. That is such fantastic advice, honestly, because when you were, as it was coming out of your mouth, I was thinking to myself, this is life advice for even just grappling with the pandemic. You know, I mean, I literally on Monday had to pick myself up out of bed and like get my like rear in gear to do all the things that I needed to do with this like overwhelming kind of client load. And I really just didn't want to. And, you know, at times I was like, I I don't want to do these things. And I literally had to give myself a talking to like, get up, do the things, move through that to do list. You know, you can't your, you know, malaise from the, the weather and the pandemic cannot stop you from what needs to get done, which is like you need to help the, the clients that have have contracted with you, you know. And so I think that's such great advice for moving through like any kind of challenge and, and particularly the one we're in right now, because it's sort of easy to sit and say, like, I just want to eat banana bread and like stay in bed and not and not deal. Um so I love that. I totally agree. I mean, I, I feel like I'm always running in a million different directions, whether physically or in my head. And sometimes I feel so overwhelmed by all the stuff I have to do that I just say, you know what, do the first thing and then the second thing and then the third thing. And obviously distractions happen and things change, but you just kind of got to, you got to do it. No one else is going to do it for you. So that's, I love this. I absolutely love this. Just get in action. And we have to remind ourselves that when, when, when things feel overwhelming and you know, to ask for help and be with people that love you and support you and that are maybe. Yeah. And to prioritize too, um, especially now not to get too off topic, but with like kids being home so much, um, my daughter's pretty much home every day doing school from home. My son's every other day. And, um, so I have to remind myself to like, when they come downstairs or lunch or whatever, to like, try to really enjoy that time because I know it, it's not going to be around forever. Yeah, exactly. The passage of time. No, I, I, I completely relate to that. But speaking of like time and kids, and I, this is not off topic at all. Like This is what we're living through. And I, I do want to just sort of shift gears for a minute and talk about um, a project that you were recently involved with. Uh, Zibby Owens of the show of the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read, who is a wonderful um you know, uh, sort of booster of books and reading and literacy and supporter of, of women writers and authors in general. I know that you were involved with that project, and I would love if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about it. Sure. Yeah, no, Zibby is great, and she's such a cheerleader for authors and writers. The, na- the name of the book is called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology, and she's done all these wonderful virtual events to promote the book. But of course, in the process, she's promoting all the other authors that are in the book, which is very her. Um, So I have two essays in the book. Um, One is called, wait, did I kill my book club? Wait, did I kill my book club? (laughs) That absolutely cracked me up. I love it. Yeah. And Um, did you? And did you kill your book club? (laughs) Yeah. Some say I murdered my book club. So I was in a book club for a number of years and it was with some people I knew before, some people I didn't. It was a great group. We read a lot, but it was getting to the point where it felt like homework 
back in high school that I didn't want to do. And I had real work to do and other books that I wanted to read that weren't being assigned that someone else didn't assign to me. So, um, and I definitely am like a people pleaser and I want, you know, everyone to be happy all the time. And I just emailed the book group and said, you know, I'm out, but I didn't even really give an explanation. It was very non me. And then everybody just quit and nobody ever went to it again. <laughs> so I have a little guilt on that. Uh, the other, the other essay I wrote was called breaking up with my kids about how as a mom of teenagers, I sometimes need to emotionally break up with my kids in my head. They don't even know that I'm doing this, but, um, you know, I use an example. This was pre pandemic where I went to watch my son in his high school basketball game and he pretty much sat on the bench the whole time. And I, when I looked at him, it was like more painful for me than it probably was for him to see the disappointment. And so I just had to kind of disassociate myself from him. Um, and I do that every once in a while. I just kind of let the kids go through their own stuff and then they come back and they, they have to feel the feels themselves. Right. Um, so those were what my essays were in the book. There were like, I think 50 or 60 other essays in the book. Um, all under the categories of moms don't have time to is moms don't have time to um, read moms don't have time to exercise moms don't have time to eat moms don't have time to breathe moms don't have time to have sex um, I think I covered all of them but <laughs> they were essays from authors of all different kinds and it was a lot of women um, essayists but there were also some men in there and it was really fun um, to contribute to it it was also really fun to read um, the essays of other authors, some I know, some I obviously don't know. And it was interesting to see, you know, maybe somebody who writes historical fiction write this like very deep, meaningful essay, or somebody who usually writes, um, I don't know, romance or something, write about um, like a very funny essay. So it's just, I think I love anthologies. Um, and Zibby was so great about putting it all together and editing it and getting it out in the world. I think at a perfect time when um, we're also re-examining the way we live our lives in the midst of this, you know, so to speak, year-long quarantine. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. I haven't made it through all the essays. I read yours and uh, your two, and I read uh, the one from Karen Ducasse, who had been on my show in season one. Karen published her first novel. Oh, nice. Um, uh, when yeah. she was uh, 56, which was it's the last book party. And I'm going to link to both uh, the Moms Don't Have Time to Quarantine Anthology and, of course, all of your books in, in, in the show notes. But it's it's a wonderful book. It's a yeah, I read a really, it's a great book. And I'm, you know, I'm always reading different books. I'm in the middle of reading a novel. But last night I just popped open Zibby's book and I read an essay by Liz Astroff, um, who's a comedy writer in L.A. who wrote um mom's enough time to cry about how she sort of had a cry bottled up in her for many days and she just let it out and I practically cried reading it it was it was great I have to read that I I, I feel like I definitely yeah. found time to cry during the pandemic I mean there were times when yeah. I was like I had to I, like put myself to bed at 7 30 at night and just like rage yeah. text my like girlfriends from high school and like weep about the 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 shit show that was like unfolding in my home because it was rough totally. back in March and April and yeah. it was and then you, you know, have to let that out I mean I have a I actually wrote an essay about this of course my whole life is out there for the world to see I guess much to my husband's chagrin but um, <laughs> he, no he's a good sport but um, I I've been doing a Zoom call every week every Thursday night with my college friends there's like seven or eight of us we live all over the country we're very close and. We used to call it the happy hour, but sometimes we call it the sad hour. <laughs> sometimes we're just like bitching and moaning. Um, and sometimes we're laughing and it's just always really good to connect. I don't make it every single week and not everybody does, but it's, 
it's always a good time. Yeah, so, your friends are a lifeline during time. this. And as much as we're all sick of Zoom, it's really, it's been a lifesaver to be able to see people's faces. We've celebrated, you know, holidays, birthday parties, my sister's 50th, all happened over you know, technology. And I can't wait till that changes, but it's, um, you know, it's it beats the alternative. But the, the, the book is wonderful and it's a terrific snapshot of this very weird time. And I think that it's it's so enjoyable and it's going to be so deeply relevant for a while. We'll be able to, you know, our kids can look at it and be like, wow, that was what was happening during that absolutely insane, yeah. insane year. So the pandemic has been hideous, you know, on so many levels, but it's also generated creative projects, you know, like the one... You just talked about this quarantine, but I know you're also you've many creative uh, hats going on, Rachel. I know you you're involved with something new that you've been cooking up, which is literally about cooking. And I want you to tell us more about uh, a mighty blaze. Yeah, so this was probably in the early fall. Maybe I've been doing it for I don't know since October. Um, I started working with this organization called a mighty blaze, which um, was just started last March in the very beginning of the pandemic. It was started by New York Times bestselling authors, Jenna Blum and Caroline Levitt. And they came together when the world shut down because they are authors and they have so many author friends and they're such book lovers and book fans that they said, we can't, um, you know, we have to do something to help these authors whose book tours have all been canceled by COVID. So they got together a group of a lot of their creative type friends and colleagues, and they all came together to start this organization called A Mighty Blaze. I joined, like I said, a few months into it. And what we do is we um, promote, um, and it's all, it's all volunteer-based, and we promote um, all authors through all different channels. We run weekly programming where... Um, People interview authors. Um, there's a mighty mystery show on the topic of mysteries. There's a show by a guy called The Thoughtful Bro. And that's sort of self-explanatory. He's thoughtful, <laughs> but he's broish. Um, we have a show called Authors Love Bookstores, where um, two of the two of the Blazers, as we call them, interview um, a, a, an author and his or her favorite independent bookstore, and they interview the bookstore owner. Um, we have Friday Frontliners where we offer a lot. We um, interview some celebrities. We have a uh, somebody who hosts a poet show. I know I'm going on and on. And no, I love this. I, I, I have to tune into the one more. about. I know there's more I'm, I'm not getting to. But we also have, we have some new stuff coming up. But I um, started a show called Blaze Baking with Rach. And I always say I'm the Rach. Um, <laughs> and it sort of started out when I was started working with the team. They said, oh, you should have your own show. What do you like to do? And I said, I like to bake. And it sort of happened organically because in the beginning of the pandemic, before I was officially working with the Mighty Blaze, I was doing these Zoom baking classes for friends and family because, you know, remember March and April, nobody yes. left their house. Yes. Um, and I have become a little famous in my town for my chocolate chip cookies that I've made and other recipes. And so I started teaching people on Zoom and it grew and grew. And people were like, what are we going to make next week? What are we going to make next week? So this sort of homegrown show that I started turned into a show to promote cookbook authors. So for the first episode, um, we had on Cheryl Day, the author of the Back in the Day Bakery Cookbooks, who runs a fabulous bakery in Savannah, Georgia. And we made these cookies that I love. And actually this Saturday, February, or whenever, I'm not sure exactly when this is going to air, but on February 27th, we're going to be um, having on Elisa Tori, who's the founder of Magnolia Bakery. Ooh. And we're going to make these amazing marshmallow chocolate brownies. Um, you're talking about multitasking right before I got 
on this interview with you, I was just practicing making a pie in my kitchen, which is in baking in the oven right now. And I have, if you could see me now, I have like flour all over me. Um, I'm so jealous. What kind of pie? Who wrote a cookbook? It's actually, it's a chess pie, which is sort of like a vanilla custardy kind of pie. Um, So yeah, it's been really fun. I mean, I feel like um, it's great to help out all these other authors and to get to know them and to bake, which I love to do. And I feel like it's giving our viewers confidence in their baking skills. It's giving them something to do on a cold Saturday afternoon or hopefully in the spring, a warm Saturday afternoon. We do it the last, we usually do it the last Saturday of every month schedules, you know, dependent. And so that's been, that's been a really fun creative outlet. And it makes me feel good to give back to so many different authors because so many creative types and authors have been so generous with me over the years, people like yourself. So I absolutely love that. It's we've been doing a lot of baking. I keep joking about banana bread because that's like, that's kind of my specialty. That's all that I do. But my daughter who is gluten free has used, um, you know, the quarantine to really do a ton of gluten-free baking. Uh, have you done any of that on these shows, or is it, are you, like, more, yeah, so my are you a flower person? Period of time. <laughs> she's not, she's, we sort of say she's gluten-light now, but, um, and I've done that too. But, it's hard, um, so, though, yeah, like, it's different. Example, it is hard, but with these marshmallow Oreo brownies, for example, which sound like, you know, chock full of gluten, you could, there actually are um, gluten-free Oreos that you can now purchase. Um, I think Oreo, their actual real Oreo brand, gluten-free Oreos, they also have them at Trader Joe's. And I mean, I I bake sometimes with gluten-free flour just because I I have it. Um, I think Bob's Red Mill, I sound like a commercial right now for (laughs) gluten-free products. Bob's Red Mill one-to-one flour is good. So there's lots of ways. I mean, my husband's allergic to certain nuts. So there's definitely, um, I'm all for baking substitutes. People have a lot of sensitivities and allergies these days, or sometimes people just want to be a little bit healthier, um, you know, with their choices. So I'm going yeah, to need to totally get that. up for gluten-free baking. I'm going to need to get some of those recipes that I can link to in the show notes as well, because this, this show, uh, people are listening to it right now on Monday. I believe it's the first of March. So uh, your baking right. so, show will have already yeah. aired. But so you know, can... all the shows, my shows and all of the other blazers, all their shows live forever on a mighty blaze YouTube channel. So it's fun to go back and revisit um, and, you know, meet these authors of cookbook authors, all different kinds of authors. Um, that's perfect. So I'm going to put that in the show notes too, because we all need some more inspiration. So what's the favorite thing you've made to date? The favorite thing I've made, um, with a mighty blaze on the show. Yeah. On your show. I gotta say, I, um, it's these marshmallow Oreo brownies are amazing. They're so good. All right, done. I'm done. Um, and, And Elisa Torrey, who's the founder of Magnolia Bakery, said very correctly to me on the phone one day when we were picking a recipe, she said, the thing about these brownies and most brownies is that they taste better the next day. And that's definitely true. So you bake them, you let them sit, you eat them. They're good. And the next day they're even better. Okay. So, your, your kids are, your kids are like them. better behaved than mine because there's no next day brownies in my house. <laughs> they're, they're usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my kids, they don't realize how lucky they are, but there's always something baking in my kitchen. I can't say there's always something cooking in my kitchen. Um, <laughs> Priorities. Like my, Right. It was my birthday last month. My husband said, what should we do for your birthday dinner? Well, you know, I'll cook a really good dinner. I was like, honestly, my perfect dinner is like a glass of wine, a salad and like five cupcakes. So, <laughs> um, you know, so I'm definitely I have, I have a sweet tooth. I know I do. Yeah. Um, you know, I try to eat healthy and I do eat healthy, but not with the sweet tooth. Yeah, of course. Listen, so you, you, you queued this up. You said you just had a birthday. How old are you, Rachel? Oh, I did queue this up. So I just turned 47. 
crazy to me. A so, baby. A baby. I know. Well, first of all, this this is like exciting and this is historic because you are officially the youngest guest that we have had on the show. So what, you know, you're, you're, and I love to be the young. Yeah. So you're, so you're, you're a couple years out from joining the, the 50 club, which is, you know, a fantastic yet underrated club. And I would love to just, you know, before we wrap here a little bit more about like, what's your take on aging and has your writing changed as you've aged and, you know, what do you think about 50? Tell us. Um, well, I definitely, it's funny that I'm the youngest cause I'm the youngest person in my family. So I always kind of like to be the youngest. I mean, in terms of, you know, the family that I grew up in and my cousins and all that. Um, so I think about aging a lot. I think, I think about it because my mother was diagnosed with cancer when she was 51 and she died when she was 57. Um, so, you know, at the time when all this was happening, I was in my twenties and it was horrible and I felt that she was young, but I was also kind of like, yeah, but she's in her fifties and her kids got married. And, but now that I'm approaching that age, I realize how young she really was. Right. And I, I still keep in touch with a lot of her friends and they miss her so much. And I, I could imagine, you know, God forbid now losing a friend that age. So, you know, when I think of getting older and approaching 50, which was and 51 and all that, which was a big year for my mom, obviously, I just, I just want to be alive. I know that sounds kind of crude maybe and maybe funny, but it's true. I mean, I talked to, you know, my friends and I, we talk about stuff and we joke about when we retire, when we have grandkids and in the back of my mind, I don't often say it out loud, but that's the truth. I just, I just want to be alive. Um, and maybe that sounds weird, but that's, I think that's the perspective. Um, I feel as I approach these ages, I appreciate every single birthday. I appreciate every single year. Um, I think about my mom at, at every birthday and I think, oh, I, you know, I'm remembering her. What was she like when she was 47? What was she like when she was 48? Um, so it's very much attached to that way. Um, so I'm not, I'm not scared of getting older. I, I want to get older. It's like the greatest gift, right? To have Absolutely. a birthday every single year. Absolutely. And as far as like aging, in terms of like how we look, I'm, I'm pretty chill about that. I mean, I look so much like my mother. And as I get older, I look more and more like her. I look in the morning, every in the mirror every morning rather. And I just see her and I'm interested in the shape in, in what my face is turning into. Uh, no judgment on people who are changing things of their faces. I know there's <laughs> a lot of popular things to do. I'm just really not interested in that. Um, Cause I'm just kind of curious to see what my face is going to look like. Yeah. Oh my Warts, gosh. wrinkles and all. Yep. I so love that. I so love that. And I, I found myself sort of nodding and again, like feeling, you know, a little like a lump in my throat because you know, part of my, my spirit with this podcast is I do believe we should be able to age out loud, but I agree with you that it's a gift. I lost two very good friends. Um, in high school, my best friend died after a four-year battle of cancer. She was a sophomore in college when she died. And oh, um, I, I had another friend who, who was killed in a car accident accidentally. And we, you know, we, we still miss them. My friends and I are still close. And and um, their absence is felt. And I agree with you. It's like I, I feel like every birthday is a gift and not one you, keep, you, know, you should be taking for granted. So I, I, I think when you do lose people in your life, especially at a young age, like when they're young and it, it's not – it shouldn't be their time. Not that there's any, you know, assigned time, but it, it does make you um, grateful. I'm grateful to be aging. You know, I wish. I and by the way, I'm, I'm not like a perfect angel or anything. Trust me, I sweat the small stuff. 
and I get annoyed <laughs> at the little things and I yell at my kids and whatever I have my moments but then at the same time I do like I I, I really do think like I'm lucky to be here I do and I think what my mother would do to be here you know what she's missing out on and other people too who I know who experience loss and other people I lost I think you know we can't live every life we can't live every day being like I'm so lucky this is amazing enjoy every minute but um I think unfortunately I have that perspective and as we age many more people have that perspective too right um that's part of grieving I think is gaining that perspective a lot of people gain it some people don't um but if you can, it's sort of the wisdom that comes with the loss and with the age. And I think that's really important to, to hold on to and to remember. I love that. And I so agree. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Rachel, one of my favorite recording artists is Warren Zevon, and he's got a, a, you know, a saying, enjoy every sandwich. And that's, you know, you have to. I love that. Exactly. It's like, it doesn't have to be like rainbows and unicorns to feel like, you know, just appreciate the things that you enjoy. So thank you for, thank totally. you. For... And I think that kind of a, a sign of what's going on in the world with the pandemic like it's very mundane sort of oh it's like time to make the donuts groundhog day all that stuff but just try to enjoy it if you can count your blessings love it i love it i love it i love it so i'm going to link to all your your books in the show notes because you you talk about uh, the blessings you talk about sort of the magic in just everyday life and um you, you you talk about navigating all of this motherhood being a daughter coming of age navigating loss but um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if there's just, I always ask every guest, is there one last thing you want to share with our listeners? Is there something that's kind of like lighting you up a product or a tool that you want to pass along before we end? Well, this is kind of funny for a product or a tool. I, I guess it's kind of lighting me up, but it's just like, I've never used it so much in my entire life. And it's, it sounds very 1950s housewife, which I don't even think I'm allowed to say that word anymore, <laughs> but I, I say it. I say it ironically, I guess. I don't know if I'm even saying that right, but it's the KitchenAid electric mixer that I got, I think, when I was married over 20 years ago. Oh, my God. I love it. And it's like one of those things. I think when I got it, when I got married, when I was all of 25, I was like, what am I going to do with this giant thing that is so heavy? I don't even understand. Do I plug it in? How does it work? And now it's like a part of what I'm doing creatively. Um, So I highly recommend that as an investment to people if they don't already have one. That is hilarious. I love it. This this is like this is up there. My other favorite um recommendation from a uh from a guest was uh Nancy Davis Coe, who is the author of the Thank You Project, um, which is a wonderful book on gratitude. And her product she wanted to share with us all was her love of caftans and how she was embracing wearing them during quarantine. So I'm like picturing you in a caftan with your mixer. Making these totally. insane brownies, and I like want to come yeah. right. I want to come right over. <laughs> it's very retro. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, yeah. Rachel. Thank you so much for being here today. Where can people keep following you and your work? Sure. Well, you can go to my website, which is rachellevylesser.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Rachel Levy Lesser, on Instagram at Rachel Levy Lesser. I'm on Twitter at Rachel Levy Lesser, where I'm not there as much as I should be, but I'm trying to get there more. Um, and um, that's where people can, can follow me and, and see my latest work and also check out some pretty good looking baked goods. I love it. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rachel. Thanks, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. 
If you enjoyed the show, please head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to rate and review the show. And come keep me company over on Instagram at a certain age pod. Do not make me hang out there alone. I would love your company and your comments. Join me next week as I sit down with certified divorce coach Kate Anthony, creator of the wildly popular podcast and blog, The Divorce Survival Guide. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.